Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to today's History Hack. We've got a bit of a sweeping episode for everybody today, haven't we, Chris? Yeah, absolutely. This is uh, this was sent to me about, about three months ago, I think I got the first copy, and it's, it's really good. We've got Ferdinand Mount, who is a writer and former head of the Downing Street Political Unit and editor of the Times Literary Supplement for 11 years. And he's here today to talk to us about his new book, Big Caesars and Little Caesars, How They Rise and How They Fall, from Julius Caesar to Boris Johnson. Ferdinand, welcome to History Hack. How are you doing? Not too bad. Thanks very much for inviting me. I really love this concept of looking at it from when a Caesar actually was a Caesar, um, all the way down through to people who have absolute delusions of uh, grandeur and should know better. I think that's a really good concept for a book. (laughs) Well, of course, um, from the start, the Romans were very suspicious of the first Caesars and uh, Marcus Aurelius, the second center, said in his meditations, I've all costs, I must remember not to become Caesarified. So it goes back <laughs> a long way back, the idea that this is some dangerous temptation. But really, but what I'm talking about, the idea of Caesarism is starts in the 19th century when people um, suddenly reacted against parliamentary democracy and what they thought were its failings and all the fiddling with ballots and majorities and governments changing. And all the philosophers hated that. Hegel, Marx, a lot of them, they all hated this idea that people could discuss and change their minds and argue and that the votes could um, move this way and that. And that's when the word Caesarism came in and... um, um, when Louis Napoleon became a, a, a French Caesar. And Karl Marx said, uh, you know, the famous remark, uh, when something happens the first time, so, um, uh, they forgot to add that the second time it happens as fast. They thought that Caesarism was a throwback, wasn't, wasn't going to happen in our day. Um, but here we are, 100 <laughs> years later, and there are Caesars wherever you like to look, really. Yeah. And yeah, there's, I think there's always someone who just doesn't want to play nice with everybody else in the sandbox and just wants everyone to do what they want. I don't think that's ever going to go away, do you? No, I don't. But I think the illusion was that it had gone away, that we were going to, we were got nice, secure parliamentary democracy that was going to be conquer everywhere. This character, Frank Fukuyama, wrote a famous book called The End of History, which said no more, no more, no more Caesars, no more dictators. Um, and um, the latest study of 
Caesars, dictators, whatever you want to call them, uh, by Ian Dale, um, who I think is not unknown to you, he, he says that uh, almost half the Caesars in recorded history are since Mr. Fukuyama wrote his book saying it was dead and gone. So <laughs> here we are. They're, they're, we're, st- we're stuck yeah. with them. Um, but the, the good thing is, of course, we can get rid of them. And we, uh, yeah. Bolsonaro, Trump, um, our own dear Boris, um, they can be toppled. So my book is, isn't, um, isn't a pessimistic one. It's a, it's a hymn to vigilance. It's uh, saying this is how they work and this is how you can get rid of them. I was just going to say, I actually am going to be writing for that dictator's book as well, which I think is, I think I have to hand it in this year for next year. because the I think it's next year, that. yes, yeah. Yeah, I have Ataturk. I don't know if you're contributing as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, right, no, well, I, I'm not, no. But, um, um, but um, you know, it is, uh, it, it is a fascinating thing. And the um, um, thing is, they don't need to have any ideology or policy particularly except a rather sort of shouty nationalism and um whipping up um hostility to immigrants and that goes back way back that that particular theme to uh, pericles uh, was um in ancient greece a figure much admired by boris uh he introduced a law saying no one who was an immigrant could become a citizen and his own wife got stuffed by that uh, law because she turned out to be half foreign but so that <laughs> is a very ancient theme um, which doesn't stop it being played over and over again yeah and uh, the one that you use to illustrate the idea of caesarism uh, is uh, a history hack favorite oliver cromwell yes <laughs> oliver cromwell it's the most extraordinary thing you go into parliament square and you see this lovely great statue by a very good sculptor of the late 19th century, um, Amo Thornycroft. And there he is um, looking all uh, uh, like a sort of nightclub bouncer in armour. Uh, and um, what's he doing in front of the Mother of Parliaments? Um, because mm-hmm. Oliver Cromwell uh, smashed up not only the, fa- the famous scene when he walked in and said, you are no parliament, get out, and took up the mace and ran off with it, but he smashed up parliament after parliament six times. And yet there he is in uh, glorified um, in front of the House of Commons. And, um, it, but it took a very long time because he was cursed for centuries until Thomas Carlyle, uh, said, what we need is heroes. Here, he read a book called On Heroes and Hero Worship, and he said, what we need is great men. Put a great man in charge. Forget all the ballots and elections and so on. Put a great man in charge and you're fine. Napoleon, Cromwell, uh, uh, the, the, you, you, nothing will go wrong when you, um, uh, if you do that. And he persuaded a whole generation that Cromwell's a great parliamentarian. So there are these wonderful um, uh, posthumous uh, um, hagiographies which um, completely distort the history of what the, the person actually did. The same is true of Napoleon, um, who smashed up three French assemblies 
And indeed, when, when he, Napoleon came into the French Assembly, which was meeting out at Saint-Cloud, uh, um, a lot of the indignant deputies shouted, Abba Cromwell. I mean, they recognised that here was another Cromwell. Um, so, uh, but that doesn't stop them. No, it doesn't. I think here's what my nan would have called a shitbag, for want of a better term. As you mentioned him to Irish people, and they most certainly would not agree that he deserves a statue outside Parliament. Yeah, they actually, it was the Irish MPs, um, Lord Rosebery, for some weird reason, uh, uh, thought Cromwell was wonderful, and he tried to um, get Parliament to vote money for it. And so he, but he'd forgotten uh, the, uh, about the large block of Irish MPs who who said, for God's sake, remember Droida, remember Wexford, the, the massacres at Cromwell. So they threw it out. So he had to pay for it himself, um, which, or rather he, he had to pay for it out of his wife's money. Um, uh, so that's, that's a peculiar thing, but it should be standing there. I do like as well, there is a way to punk people, I think, with the statues, because if you've seen the one of Lloyd George that sits in Parliament Square. If that isn't an insult to the man, I don't know what is, because it's horrible and it makes me laugh every time I see it, because it's like a, a very ugly Lego man. Um, <laughs> and I yeah. think that the sculpt did that on purpose. I know. But um, it's um, the techniques by which you get there are pretty much the same. Yeah, because there are quite a lot of similarities between how these individuals come to power and how they act as well, isn't there? There are, certainly. Uh, And hostility to immigrants, which I've already mentioned, is the absolute standard one. I mean, it's um, people we regard as good leaders uh, may resort to that too. I mean, Queen Elizabeth, good Queen Bess, said there were too many blackamoors in this country. Um, and that they needed to be chucked out. So, I mean, it's not a new thing, but it is being uh, uh, emphasised, pushed with really quite remarkable um, zest in the in the modern world. Um, uh, and Donald Trump and the Mexicans, of course, in America, a nation of immigrants, the the enemy within or the enemy at the at the gates changes from generation to generation. In the 19th century, it was Italian immigrants whose um, terrible papists, um, garlic-eating papists who were going to swamp the Protestants, they were the enemy. Uh, and then, then, of course, it was the, uh, the, the blacks from the South, and now it's the Mexicans. But the, uh, the, the, the uh, cynicism with which these things are pushed uh, remains the same as it, in Britain now, um, the anti-immigrant uh, thing um, is pushed entirely in terms of boat people, when, as everyone knows, three quarters of the um, people in the immigrant statistics are either uh, uh, care workers working in the hospitality sector or foreign students, and the boat people are a, a tiny proportion, but that never stops people. But I think Boris is quite um, uh, remarkable in the ways he uses... Not uh, um, several more of the traditional enemy uh, uh, Aunt Sally's of the Caesar um, judges. Um, uh, he's um, gone for lefty lawyers who are obstructing the will of the people, um, and then um, fake voters. We've now got um, a compulsory ID to um, 
actually to uh, re- reduce the number of people who might vote Labour on the entirely fraudulent premise that there's a great deal of voter impersonation, which uh, is virtually invisible problem. Uh, and um, and then actually Parliament itself um, became uh, 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 Boris's target. He says, you are a broken Parliament. Words which very much remind one of Cromwell, or you may think the two people have very little in common, but that, that idea that Parliament was obstructing the will of the people is, 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 is common to them both. And then, of course, demonstrators. Um, um, the, 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 this government, like, like the Johnson government, was passing laws to restrict the um, right to demonstrate. Um, and, um, on, and now um, uh, the police have the power to uh, forbid dem- demonstrations which they think uh, are too noisy. Well, I mean, who's to say what's uh, 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 too noisy? And a demonstration which um, makes no noise at all is inaudible. Um, so, um, and that I think is, um, people perhaps may not have put it all together, but if you put the record of the Johnson government over its three years and the acts which came became law in the spring of last year, April 22, um, the five acts, they are a remarkable set of repressive laws. And we used to learn at school about the repressive six acts, which Lord Liverpool's government brought in, in a, um, after Waterloo. But the, Johnson's five acts have a rather family similarity to that. But again, all this is, is standard um, Caesarist technique. You have already mentioned one man who has a debatable relationship with the truth. Actually, this was in the papers just yesterday because he was waffling and just making words up. And that's Donald Trump. So how how is truth manipulated across history between these Caesars? Who could you pick out for us that, that shares those parallels? Well, I think you can go right back to the start. Um, again, we were taught, we remember if we taught Latin at school, we were taught that Caesars account of the war, war, his Gallic campaign, was an absolute model of war reporting. For 2,000 years, everyone thought it was the absolute truth. But now historians say um, he made two-thirds of it up, exaggerated the the casualties of the Gauls. Um, And and if you look at it uh, every now and then, he says he wiped out a tribe, and then the tribe reappears in the next chapter to be wiped out again. It's... um, it's all uh, tremendously overblown reporting. But the interesting thing is that people at the time say, hey, he's made a lot of this up. Um, um, the general, Asinius Pollio, who was with, I mean, he was a friend of Caesar's, and he was with Caesar when Caesar crossed the Rubicon. He said um, uh, uh, he, he'd made a lot of it up and exaggerated, but no, but no, but he got away with it, and um, and so um, so did Napoleon, who was um, bulletins from the battlefront were so notorious um, for their untruthfulness that it, that the expression um, to lie like a bulletin became a sort of cliche in in in, in France, and um, so. Uh, uh, lying is is um, is a standard technique, and and the philosophers, political philosophers, have often approved it. 
Plato invented the idea of the noble lie, that it was permissible to tell a lie in the interest of the um, of the state. Well, of course, who defines what the interest of the state is? And Machiavelli said, no, nobody is going anywhere in politics, can afford to tell the truth all the time. That's The truth is for wimps. And um, uh, uh, the little people, great men, are unashamed to lie. Um, and um, there's a, a very good uh, dystopian novel by Sinclair Lewis called It Can't Happen Here, published in the 30s, which said pretty much that it has a sort of... Uh, uh, f- fictional dictator who says the uh, truth isn't for plain folks. Uh, they, um, uh, it's too, we just only confuse them. Um, and everyone, everyone said at the time they thought it was like um, uh, particularly unscrupulous populist um, Governor Huey Long. But actually when, when, when Donald Trump came along said, ah, 50 years later, um, here's somebody who, um, who, fulfills exactly this idea that the, the truth is for little people and what we need is alternative facts. Um, uh, on the famous, Trump's most famous lie, um, uh, um, uh, that he won the election, uh, in which he propelled all that. The thing that he'd actually said this eight years before, and nobody much noticed because he was only a, a, a loudmouth businessman at the time. But all, mm. when Obama uh, was uh, re-elected in 2012, Trump uh, tweeted like crazy, we can't let this happen, he said. We need a revolution. This is a lie. Obama lost. And um, he then he then rather hurriedly deleted the tweets um, so that uh, you had to be a rather vigilant reporter like Peter Oborn, who I uh, picked this this little uh, uh, tidbit up from, but he'd been he'd been denying uh, election results um, uh, for the past decade, and of course the one thing that parliamentary democracy or any kind of democracy requires is losers' consent. You have to, if you lose, you've got to say. Um, I'm sorry, we lost. Uh, people made a mistake, but we lost. Um, and um, as soon as you refuse to do that, you're in big trouble. Um, and um, uh, so the, um, the, the refusal to accept plain facts is, um, or to report things accurately. I, I mean, as we all know, um, Boris came to fame um, on... Um, as Brussels correspondent uh, for the Daily Telegraph, where he propelled all these wonderful fantasies about uh, the things that the Brussels bureaucrats were going to do. Um, and the sort of curious way that people accept these things as um, as a sort of half joke. Um, actually, Trump himself had a rather good phrase for it. He called it truthful hyperbole, i.e. if you say something which is sort of exaggerated and amusing, um, the fact that it isn't actually true is sort of secondary. It, it kind of reinforces people's beliefs anyway. You know, you've got the, the people who believe that Brussels are going to bring in straight bananas and they're going to make our hoovers less powerful. So when you get someone say, oh, yeah, this is what's happening, they go, oh, yeah, we knew it, we knew it. 
So yeah, it's, yeah, kind of right. it's, it's the sort of thing they would do. Uh, so, um, it, it, yeah, it reinforces your your existing beliefs. I know we've kind of touched on this already, but the the art, and I'm trying not to mention a popular mid 20th century uh, German regime, but in yeah. the rise of certain dictators, they do tend to use the the enemies of the people and them and us in inverted commas to, to raise to power. That, that that's quite a popular move, isn't it? Yes. Um, I mean, I think you have to refer to a certain uh, mid-20th century German politician because the the similarities are so great, not only with the modern um, right-wing dictators, but with left-wing dictators and indeed with with the teachings of Karl Marx. I mean, Mein Kampf is filled with these descriptions of the young Adolf going to the Austrian parliament and thinking these old wafflers are no good at all. Parliamentary democracy is a completely broken system and it must be swept away. And it really isn't very different from uh, the the Marxist view of bourgeois democracy. Um, And uh, and of course, the uh, indifference to truth is, is one of the most important parts of Mein Kampf. And, um, and if, if you, uh, the interesting thing in, in Mein Kampf is that um, the one thing that Hitler admires very much about the British or the Allies was their propaganda in the First World War that they'd made, they made, he said, invented a whole lot of German atrocities. And he said, the thing is, you've got to do better than that. You've got, you've got to do better than they do. You've got to invent your own atrocities. And, and so his, the passages in Mein Kampf on propaganda are, I would say, the most remain the most influential um, part of that terrible book because the, the, in return, the democratic regimes um, took up Propaganda in a big way, in a big way, uh, and uh, deception um, and perpetual bombarding uh, of uh, uh, of of the public with the same message over and over again. And um, when you read about the modern um, information departments of presidents and prime ministers. Comms, as we call them now, not even communications. Um, the whole the orthodoxy is you've got to pump the stuff out twenty four seven. You've got to go on saying the same simple thing over and over again until people believe it. And that, and that is that is the legacy of mind count, um, which has infected politics everywhere. I think. Yeah, wasn't it Goebbels who said something about perpetuating the big lie? the people i forget the the complete quote that is is key i i think and um i got a chapter uh one of the chapters about coups that fail uh, because i think it's quite important to see what when coup coup d'etats fail and why they fail and one of them that i chose is the uh, beer hall putsch in which the in in the end the um the, the, the legitimate authorities uh, uh, in Bavaria uh, stood firm and uh, and uh, locked them up, and, the, and there was a, a shootout in which a dozen or so of the um, Nazis uh, were killed. 
But what was interesting was that Hitler already thought, actually, I don't really want to be doing this because I'd much rather get myself elected more or less legitimacy and then abolish um, uh, the, the parliamentary democracy, which is what he did very quickly and effectively in 1933. So he sort of thought in a way he was on a, a loser, although he said that the people who were killed were martyrs of the revolution. But he was on he was already on a winning wicket because even the people he was trying to lock up were themselves meditating a, a coup uh, against Berlin. And the whole atmosphere of Bavaria after the end of uh, after the armistice was so infected with vengefulness um, anti-Semitism, hostility to democracy, um, and all the other things that he, that um, Hitler had a, a huge groundswell of popular opinion behind him. Um, and um, if uh, if the authorities hadn't stood firm, he might well have made it then. But but the and the other thing to note is how remarkably stable and um, uh, cohesive the Nazi party was, even at that early stage, um, 10 years before taking power and uh, 22 years before they were all um, lined up in the dock at Nuremberg. They were all there, Goebbels, Goering, um, and the, the, the whole lot of them, and they they stuck together in um, an extremely um, effective way. Um, so although the coup failed, uh, it's interesting to see the sort of how the, the makings of the, of, of the Nazi regime was already fully in place with a full programme of all the horrible things that they did in the end do. It's horrific, isn't it? I just want to quickly duck back because you did mention the case of Oliver Cromwell and how a historian had inadvertently or advertently uh, stirred up this this kind of cult of personality to give this yeah. person a, a reputation in history for people. And then it might skew our view of them and what they did. Is that exclusive to Cromwell or do you find that occurring multiple times? Multiple times, I think. Uh, for example, the first use of the uh, term Caesarism, as in French, uh, 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 this um, interesting but weirdo Auguste Romier, who wrote a book called The Era of Caesarism, looking back uh, to uh, Napoleon the, the, the first and promoting uh, the cult of, of Louis Napoleon, Napoleon's nephew. Uh, and um, he, he um, completely uh, repeated all the accusations against parliament and uh and uh, and he 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 bigged up uh louis napoleon and um um victor hugo said uh, after napoleon the great we have napoleon the pity um but uh, romeo managed to get people to believe that louis napoleon was in fact great um and uh you get that and that reverberates on to de Gaulle, a hundred years later, 
um, the girl's in, um, uh, reputation was uh, much in, um, enhanced by his Lieutenant Philippe Segar, who led the Gaullist party. And Segar wrote a book called Napoleon the Great about Louis Napoleon. So they, they were kind of establishing a tradition that these people who smash up parliaments, Louis Napoleon lo- locked up, the, he locked up the judges and the MPs um, uh, and killed a few hundred people as well. So he wasn't a sort of softy. Um, and they established a tradition that these people who destroy elected parliaments do in fact represent the will of the people. So you you need to have these um, uh, these enthusiastic propagandists. Uh, but of course, the uh, the big Caesar and little Caesars are are often their own best propagandists. But but they need a a, 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 a few little helpers to um, uh, pull them along. A lot of the Caesars that we've talked about so far and that in the book are, are men no no comments on that but there that you do mention one female caesar so uh can you tell us a bit about indira gandhi yes um i think the reason they're all men is because uh women haven't very often um made it been allowed to get near the top um but um indira gandhi was after all only got to the top because she was nehru's daughter um and when they uh, made her head of the Congress Party. They thought um, uh, the, the sort of uh, the Godfathers of the Congress Party uh, thought that um, she would be an easy touch because she was only a silly girl and she hadn't really got any political experience. Uh, however, she turned out to be a great deal tougher than they were and uh, abolished the Congress Party as it was and restarted it. And then um, it took everyone by surprise. It especially took. English politicians like Michael Foote and Margaret Thatcher, who very much admired her as a democratically elected um, uh, uh, prime minister. And so they thought when she brought in the emergency in 1975, there must be a good reason for it. And they were very indulgent towards her, although the fact that, you know, she put 100,000 people in jail, um, uh, uh, censored the press, and um, uh, removed um, provincial prime ministers who weren't, uh, wouldn't kowtow to her, and altogether had a perfectly straightforward um, uh, Caesarist program, um, uh, not, not as murderous as, uh, uh, as some, but, but one that did lasting damage because she did, to a lot of people's equal surprise, then repent after a couple of years, and held an election, which she lost uh, very badly. And um, she got back again later, which was equally surprising. But the fact that she'd been able to impose um, the emergency on (laughs) the Indian public with virtually no resistance was a very bad example um, and um, to to her successors. And um, Narendra Modi um, is well aware, having studied uh, uh, Mrs. Gandhi's record, that the Indian people will put up with quite a lot of this stuff. Um, And um, so it's interesting, although he's of a different party, a different persuasion, um, he never criticizes Mrs. Gandhi because she 
she taught him the way to do it. So um, I think one thing to sort of um, temper any optimism one may have when uh, one of these seasons gets toppled is that the damage um, left behind can last a long time. I mean, in the first place, in broken relations with other countries, we're, we're still picking up the pieces in this country, uh, from the fallout from Brexit, um, but also in the um, way in which laws have been um, twisted or broken and institutions have been belittled or, or, or perverted. Um, and, um, you know, you have to uh, um, fight back about uh, against this. Uh, too late for my book, um, but a very good, interesting episode, I think, was the uh, report of the Privileges Committee, which recommended <laughs> a, a substantial <laughs> substantial uh, uh, suspension from Parliament uh, for Mr. Johnson, um, at which he uh, slunk off into the bushes uh, uh, as, uh, what's it called, uh, uh, the Chiltern Hundreds. Um, and um, that word privilege, which is on the whole a word which is rather used rather pejoratively, but when the Privileges Committee uh, reported, I thought back to a, a would-be, a royal Caesar, who you remember, Charles I, when he <laughs> came to Parliament to try and arrest those MPs, and um, the Speaker said, I can't, I can't tell you where they are. And he said, damn it, the birds have flown, and went off. But he then tried, in a sort of sequel to this famous episode, he then tried to, he heard that they'd gone by boat down the Thames to the city of London, uh, take refuge there. So he marched off with his troops um, down the Strand. Um, and he was, I didn't really believe it when I first read it, he was met by huge crowds of protesters shouting privileges of Parliament, which is an awfully um, cumbersome mouthful to shout as a slogan. Um, but um, there was a, a, a popular feeling that Parliament should be privileged in the sense that it should be able to freely debate without the threat of armed soldiers coming in and arresting its members. Uh, and so that word privilege crops up now, uh, well, however much longer, three and a half centuries later, um, that um, Parliament, as long as Parliament is doing its job, it has its right to... Um, uh, to insist on it on its privileges, um, so that was a, that was a sort of telling little parallel. I thought definitely. Um, have to ask: How does the gunpowder plot fit into all of this? The gunpowder plot. Well, um, that's like another one I chose. The Cato Street conspiracy is an example of. Um, uh, Conspiracies coup d'etat, which in theory had a chance, but in practice were rumbled before they started, um, so that um, while Guy Fawkes was uh, laying his gunpowder under the Houses of Parliament, um, the King's officers were already searching and, and found him, Mr Guido Fawkes, 
um, uh, in a slouch hat, uh, piling up these these huge barrels of gunpowder, which would indeed have been enough to blow the um, houses of Parliament sky high. Um, so, but the um, a letter, a warning. Um, nobody quite knows who sent this letter, but a letter warning that this was going to happen was brought to Lord Salisbury and the fellow um, cabinet of the day, uh, and they acted very swiftly. Um, and that's one thing that's interesting is if or if the authorities act swiftly um, against an unjust coup which has no widespread support, they can pretty well snuff it out. And the the, the gunpowder plotters who weren't arrested under the Houses of Parliament fled to the Midlands, to Warwickshire, Northamptonshire, Warwickshire, and eventually Staffordshire, hoping that they were going to pick up support. But they didn't pick up any support. In fact, their numbers dwindled as they got further and further to the House owned by the Littletons um, up in Staffordshire. And the Littletons were um, hanged and executed. One of them was called Humphrey Littleton, who's an ancestor of the trumpeter. Um, and um, so they just didn't have the backing because they owned, they were mostly Catholic noblemen. And although the uh, persecution of the Catholics was extremely um, un uh, harsh, and persisting, um, they didn't have the popular support they needed. So um, that is uh, is one um, example of um, of how um, energetic action can prevent something which you know you might have thought would have succeeded. Another example I uh, use is the Catiline conspiracy. Um, um, Catiline was a sort of talented, lively rogue um, who had quite a following among dashing young men, um, uh, and he um, he might have got he got an army together of twenty thousand men to march on Rome, but he was outflanked by Cicero, who did stage a cunning sting so, uh, so that his allies were all arrested. But history has sort of written him off as a kind of uh, losers, losers. But actually, um, the Roman historian Sallus said that um, he had great support among among the, uh, the popular populace. Um, and if he hadn't screwed up, he might well have um, been as successful as Julius Caesar. So, I mean, these things are touch and go often uh, and depend on the the diligence and the energy of um, of, 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 of public officials, uh, I, I think one of the most interesting things about um, the whole um, aftermath of the um, Trump non-election was the um, uh, the election officials in Georgia and Arizona uh, who just refused to be bullied. And said, "No, you didn't win." Um, and and a lot of them got punished by their Trumpista um, voters. Um, uh, Rusty Bowers, the speaker in Arizona, um, got chucked out by the Trump supporters for for for, for, for telling uh, uh, Trump and Rudy Giuliani, "No, you lost, and we're not going to 
little bit. So you you depend on the diligence and honesty of of public officials to um, keep keep the keep the country safe. So just finally, then what mu- what goes up has to come down, especially if you happen to be a lunatic with a, a dubious grip on the truth. Uh, you get rumbled in the end. What are the parallels in terms of what brings these people down? Well, what brings people pe- people down are uh, one way or another, they can get voted out if they haven't abolished elections. And if they have abolished elections, then in the end you have a revolution or a counter-revolution or whatever you want to but of course, they're also um, subject to all the weaknesses that flesh is heir to. Uh, they get ill. Um, uh, they quarrel with their supporters. Um, but, you, you know, some of them live, last a hell of a long time. Uh, I mean, an, a, a less flashy example is Salazar in Portugal, who never fought a battle. He was an academic economist and he remained um, uh, uh, leader of Portugal for over 30 years. Uh, and it was a brutal regime, but not a, not the most brutal. Um, but there'd been so much upheaval, so many civil wars and rebellions and economic collapses beforehand that the Portuguese were happy for a quiet life for for, for that very long period of time. So um, they may get toppled, but they don't necessarily get get toppled quickly. And Erdogan in, in Turkey is, a, is another very good example. Uh, you might think that he'd just be on the slide, and but no, back he comes, gets re-elected. Not by a very large margin, but by uh, uh, enough. Um, And I don't think you'll get any nicer. But, um, um, you know, they they can have a long life. Unless they invade Russia. (laughs) Unless they (laughs) invade Russia. No, there are. (laughs) There are one or two. Uh, Perhaps we could together uh, put up a... uh, put together a shorthand book for would-be Caesars um, with about... (laughs) Six rules of which the first would be don't invade Russia, I think. <laughs> yeah, just that, that'll do, just that as a page. Yeah, it's self explanatory, just don't invade Russia. <laughs> and then there's that nice cartoon, there's that cartoon that came out during the war of um, Napoleon stood staring at Moscow, and behind him was a, a monkey that looked like Hitler, and just posed, don't invade Russia, and then just that cartoon and that explains it all yeah 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 absolutely <laughs> yes no and of course um with all these things that go wrong uh there's always um uh, the defenders of the uh who say well it was just a bit mismanaged if we'd um you know come from the north or something we, we it would probably work uh, like uh communism would work it just doesn't wasn't done properly Brexit would be a huge success if it had been uh, hadn't been uh, messed up. So uh, there's always rationalizations for for failure, and and it comes down to the thems as well. With uh, well, you know, like Brexit, if the Remainers hadn't have scuffled. Oh yeah, it they, or, they they they, they yeah. screwed it up. Yeah, they 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 made it impossible. Exactly. And like the Treaty of Versailles, like we were stabbed in the back, sort of thing. Yeah, and it's, yeah. it's it's not our fault. We didn't mess it up. It's, yeah, we, it's didn't, we didn't lose. No. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> it's another reoccurring theme, isn't it? That they do like for all of their craziness and the rubbish they're coming out with inspire fanatical support. Yes, um, it is. And, and that, of course, you know, all we smart asses then really retreat baffled because we don't we can't understand it. I mean, I, I it was a good one uh, last weekend of Trump at some uh, conference of Christian conservatives um, and um, and uh, delegate after delegate was interviewed and, he said, and they all said, well, you know, I always vote for Trump. He's a good Christian gentleman. And if um, anything, uh, I've no, anything would stop me voting for him is, is if he, um, he said he didn't believe in God, but otherwise I shall go on. Uh, so, you know, uh, <laughs> if, you, if that's your um, attitude uh, to uh, the, the, the life story of, of Donald J. Trump, well, there's no hope. No, I think uh, crazy does tend to find crazy, um, as Twitter has proved time and time again. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So... I think we've covered around about, what, 3,000 years of history? Oh, yes, at least, yes. Um, it's been re- really interesting, especially draw- that we're, we're drawing all these parallels. But um, would you mind just reminding everyone uh, the title of your book and um, when it's out? It's called Big Caesars and Little Caesars, How They Rise and How They Fall, from Julius Caesar to Boris Johnson. And it's out from the Great House of Bloomsbury on July the 20th. Well, best of luck with it. We will put it in the Great War Group bookshop so that people can get hold of it nice and easily via a link. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much, Alex. It's been, been great fun. Thank you. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. <laughs>